Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today we are talking about a first ascent of an unnamed and unclimbed peak that went down last month in Nepal. And joining us to tell us about this mission are Ted Hesser and Garrett Madison. They talk about how this particular mission came about, how they even found out about this peak in the first place, why they are confident that this peak actually had never been climbed before, and more. And since we are all on the cusp of entering a new year with all of its unknowns, it felt rather fitting to talk to Ted and Garrett about their particular adventure into the unknown. And before we get started, I do want to remind you about our upcoming Blister Summit that will take place in Mount Crested Butte, February 12th through the 16th. And if you like the sound of demoing a bunch of brand new gear from a ton of different companies, going skiing, or just hanging out at Opre with some of your favorite skiers, maybe going skiing with our very own Luke Kappa, where you can ask why he always insists of slamming his bindings forward on every ski he skis. Or if you like the sound of being able to go out with professional guides, and explore some of the backcountry around CB while also demoing some new skis and other gear, well, then you should definitely check out the Blister Summit and come hang out with us. Furthermore, Blister members get $50 off the price of the Blister Summit registration. So as we like to say, the smart folks first become a Blister member, then sign up for the summit, and then come have what we think is probably going to be one of the very best experiences of your entire winter. We are super excited about this third Blister Summit, and we can't wait to see you all there. To learn more about the Blister Summit and get all sorts of detail and information, we will include a link to the Blister Summit in the show notes of this podcast episode, or you can just go to blisterreview.com and you'll see blister summit right there conveniently on the navigation bar check it out learn a lot more of what's going on at the summit and then get yourself registered we'll see you soon and speaking of summits let's now talk with ted hesser and garrett madison about their recent summit and first ascent in nepal here we go Well, Ted and Garrett, I'm very happy to have you on the Blister Podcast. My first question is, when did you two first meet? Uh, Do you mean e-meet or actually face-to-face meet, (laughs) like in person? (laughs) I mean both. I think think we agree that we met uh, on Bainbridge Island about eight or ten years ago at Pete Athens' house. Ted, is this the correct story? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was visiting Pete Athens, uh, who, who started the North face athlete team with Conrad anchor a long time ago, legendary figure. And, uh, Garrett ran by on a trail training and just kind of waved to Pete. Hey, and I think I said, Hey, <laughs> but we didn't really meet until, uh, Antarctica. Um, I was hired by Marmot 
as uh, a photo video assignment to cover one of their athletes named Roxanne Vogel, um, completing the seven summits, um, as a Hispanic female. And, uh, we, and Garrett was leading an expedition that, um, that we were a part of. So we spent a lot of time together on the ice and then joined a North Face expedition actually right after that with, um, Jimmy Chin and Conrad and Hillary and Jim to try to do the first ski descent of Mount Tyree, the second tallest peak in Antarctica. So we had a pretty immersive experience on the ice together and bonded um, maybe three or four years ago now. Um, we've been pretty good friends since then. Very cool. And that's a that's a hell of a <laughs> how did you two meet story. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Before we dive into our topic of the day, Garrett, tell us just more about your own background. So I've been a mountain guide, expedition leader, climber for over two decades now. Started my own company eight years ago. And I'm very fortunate in that I get to organize and lead mountaineering expeditions all over the world, focusing in on the highest peaks in the Himalayas, the Karakoram. Um, and I get to work and climb with a lot of really inspiring people. And um, I get to see the ad adventure and journey that they go on. So that's what I've been doing the last 20 years or so. You're currently based in the Seattle area. Has that been home for some time or have you had more of a bounce around history? Yeah, I'm, I'm from the Seattle area originally and uh, I'm based in Seattle now, but I, I travel quite a bit spending most of my year on various mountains around the world, whether it's um, Antarctica, South America, Himalayas. So pretty busy travel schedule. Garrett's a hundred percent the Dozeki's guy. He's like the most interesting <laughs> man in the world. That's like constantly somewhere doing something really incredible that you don't necessarily know about, but it's like he's he's a hundred percent the Dozeki's guy. Thanks, Ted. Hopefully <laughs> that not is, that old yet. <laughs> well, that is such yeah. high praise. <laughs> I mean, around these parts, my friend and our blister reviewer Paul Forward, we we always say that he's in running for, you know, most interesting person in the world. And so, man, for those select individuals who, you know, our friends sort of put them in that category, it's a, it's, you're in good company, I think. And that's a, that's a hell of a club. Yeah. Ted, tell us a bit about your own background. And, and we should say, listeners to our Off the Couch podcast, which you were on not too long ago. And so there's a whole lot more of your story that can be learned there. Give us a bit of a similar history that Garrett provided, and that'll help give people a sense of background and context for uh, your recent adventure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And thanks thanks for having us on here also. Um, this, is, this is fun. It's cool to be a part of this. Um, yeah, I've been a photographer and filmmaker in the outdoor industry for a long time. Um, maybe the last seven or eight years full time. And I've kind of been on expeditions and with some pretty notable figures in the outdoor industry, uh, for 15, 20 years. So, so my, my career, I, uh, I did do a different podcast, uh, for, for blister that was on, um, a, a short film I made for mountain hardware, uh, that was about my, myself really, <laughs> and, uh, running, running the world here in the Wasatch and, um, and depression, uh, which is something that I, uh, 
deal with. So it was a, it was a more personal look into that. Um, but basically I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a mountain climber, um, creative, uh, shooter, filmmaker, um, just off trying to find really interesting stories and really beautiful mountains to climb. So for the people in your lives who have asked you recently, Hey, what are you about to go do? What are you up to? Or what have you been up to? Give me the succinct definition of how you've been answering the question. And that will kind of lead us into, uh, again, your most recent adventure together. We went to Nepal and, uh, joined, uh, and I joined an Amitabhlam expedition that Garrett runs. Um, he, he runs a commercial guiding outfit with, um, a number of clients. <clears throat> Amitabhlam is a technical and beautiful peak in Nepal. Uh, and after that climb, we, um, detour to a different part of the range and uh, <clears throat> try to first ascent and, and succeeded in that first ascent. Garrett, how would you answer the question? What would you add? So, so Jonathan, we've had a great year. We started off the year in Antarctica, a um, couple of Mount Vincent expeditions, and then came to Aconcagua, still Southern Hemisphere, summertime, January, February, um, did Aconcagua, Ojos del Salado, um, then I went off to Everest uh, for April and May of this year, Everest and load sea climbing. That's our season in the Himalayas for spring pre-monsoon climbing. Uh, had a great expedition there. Then went off to Pakistan for K2 in mid-June. We had a wonderful K2 expedition with our members summiting and making it down safely. Um, <clears throat> and then my next big project was a trip over to Nepal for Ama de Blom and an unclimbed peak with my buddy Ted Hesser and a few others. And um, for me, the Unclimbed Peak is a very different project because most of the peaks that I'm organizing and, and leading trips to, or my company's leading trips to throughout the year, are peaks that get climbed many times by many people during the year. Um, they're popular commercial peaks, trade routes, you might call them, specific routes that, that many climbers will go up and down. And uh, to get to offer a, an Unclimbed Peak that nobody's ever been to before, um, and where there's really no information on the peak because nobody's tried to climb it um, is a really exciting opportunity for me. So I was sort of looking forward to this opportunity all year of getting to do something that's totally different than my normal calendar of, of climbs on my schedule um, and venturing into this unknown world with my team and, and seeing what we would find. So I was really excited to head off to Nepal. We were climbing Amitabhlam first, which is a very beautiful peak. Many people fall in love with Amitabhlam on their way trekking or heading up to Everest to climb Mount Everest. Um, it's a steep mountain, um, and not easy. Um, but that said, the route we climb, the Southwest Ridge, um, is all fixed lines. So it's, it's generally fairly safe, um, but hard climbing. And we use that as a tune up, um, physically, mentally before we went over to this unclimbed peak. So the Amada Blom climb, I had a big team there, a dozen climbers. And then after Amada Blom, just a few of us were planning to head over and try this unnamed unclimbed mountain. So I think maybe the obvious next question is, how did you find out about this peak? That's a great question. Um, we found out about this peak from some of our climbing Sherpas. So our, our main climbing Sherpa, Angferba Sherpa, is from a village nearby this peak. And he and I have done over 20 mountaineering expeditions in the Himalayas together over the last eight years. Um, and about a year, year and a half ago, he confided in me, uh, 
about this peak that is above his village that nobody had ever been to before. Um, and their village is like at the end of a trail up a valley that hardly anybody goes to in the Makali region, which is east of Mount Everest. Um, but there's this area above their village, a few days walk, um, that they would go and sometimes hunt for these, uh, these rare flowers, which Ted can tell you more about the Ursa Gumbo. And they had seen these peaks up above the, the hillsides and thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to come and try to climb some of these peaks someday? And so he had told me about this and said, hey, we should go do this. And so we finally put a trip together just this last fall season. It's a, it's a pretty special place. They call it the, the secret Shangri-La, uh, the secret valley kind of. Um, there's four unclimbed peaks there. We, we climbed one of them. Um, they're all, you know, pretty, pretty tall around 20,000 feet. They, they would each be <clears throat> the tallest peak of essentially any continent. Um, they're all pretty technical. Um, and no one had ever been there. <laughs> I mean, really after a certain point hiking up and over a ridge on Furba and, and then we're sort of climbing on Furba was like, no one's ever been here before. Um, you know, they have a pretty good knowledge of the area. They, they've lived there, their whole, you know, their ancestors have lived there. Um, it's partly secret as Garrett mentioned this, this yards of gumbo trade. Um, not sure if you've heard of this term yards of gumbo, but it's, uh, it's a, it's weird. It's a parasite that, um, takes over its host. Um, and actually is when, once it sort of dies and kills the host, it's collected. It, it's like this horn that sprouts up from worms, I think. And, uh, it's collected and sold in China and it's, uh, it's really valuable. It's more valuable than its weight in gold. Um, it's considered to be a natural Viagra by Chinese culture, traditional medicine. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very lucrative and secretive trade in, in Nepal. It only grows around the Himalayas in very certain specific parts. Um, and this may be the only area in the, the greater Kumbu, Everest, Makalu region that Yartsa Gumbo grows. It's, it's traditionally known to grow in a different part of Nepal, more in the Mustang Dolpo region, which is like pretty far away. Um, so, so there's a lot of reasons that this particular valley and place that we were was a well-kept secret. Um, and yeah, Garrett's relationship to Ang Furba really is how we, how we heard of it, why we went there. Um, yeah. Hmm. It's funny. I found myself thinking like, okay, when you say nobody's been there, maybe we need to caveat that with like, well, nobody that we are aware of has been there. But then when you point to the fact that the kind of generational knowledge in that place, if they're saying we would have heard about it if someone had exactly. gone, it, I, I think that probably gives more confidence in, you know, not having to hev heavily qualify the that we know of um, just a whole different way of thinking about or verifying right information. Totally. In the it's really interesting. Totally. I, I did a, a different first ascent with Pete Athens 10 years ago in Nepal. And it was a walk up a tall peak in the Mustang region that I just referenced. And uh, 
it was a first ascent by the record books, but I wasn't sure if it was a first ascent because I don't know. I didn't have that sort of local knowledge that you're referring to as a as a deeper understanding of what well, were we actually the first to be here or, or not? I have no idea. But um, but in this instance, that's definitely what what it felt like and what we were being told. And it just it just kind of made sense given the technicality of it. So we're gonna go try to make our way up a peak that nobody's ever been up. How does one then start to prepare for such a thing? Well, mountains have similarities and differences. Um, but if you're someone who spends a lot of time in the mountains, going up and down, finding routes, um, camping out, uh, deciding what might make the best sense uh, as a line to climb up and descend, um, they're not that much different one to the other. Sure, there's different conditions, um, approaches through forests or um, or different types of hillsides. But once you get up high, it's mostly rock, snow, and ice, which is pretty similar. So um, assuming we can get to that point, we can look at the peak and see what options might make sense from a route perspective. But on a traditional, well, I don't know if I should say traditional, on the expeditions that you are leading most of the time, Garrett, to what extent actually does this feel different? I mean, I was about to say, you've got a whole bunch of data, a whole bunch of reports from other parties over the years that are maybe identifying particularly tricky sections of an ascent. So how similar or different does that make this one? I mean, maybe you say, yeah, but you can't ever merely rely you know, we've never had trouble in this particular area of a climb on this particular peak. It's like, well, there's always a first time for anything. So so in that regard, how similar or different did this climb feel given the lack of reporting that you could be leaning on or relying on? Fairly different for me. Some peaks I've climbed as many as 200 times via one route. Mount Rainier, where I first started guiding and spent many years of my career um, leading people up and down, mostly one route. And, <clears throat> um, usually when I climb a mountain more than once, I remember parts of the route and most, most climbers wouldn't hire a guide right away who hadn't already had some experience on a particular mountain they wanted to climb, or maybe even that route. Um, but once, once climbers realize guides are adaptable and can, can size up mountains they haven't been on and routes they haven't climbed, then we learned that, well, we can figure things out as we go. And especially if there's a route guide and other people have climbed these routes, um, we know sort of how to get up them, how to get down them. We have an idea. But without any information being out there about this particular mountain or any routes on it, um, that brings out a whole host of what ifs and, and different possibilities and taps into that uh, human quality of exploration and going into the unknown, which can be really fun if we're open to it. Hmm. Garrett, you look so happy talking about this right now. <laughs> like I, it just sort of is clear. I, I mean, I, I'm confident and sure that on your say, it sounds like a, it's the wrong word, but on a, a more conventional expedition or the standard work you're doing, I have to, I, ha I know every one of those brings its own challenges and unique 
experiences, right? Every time up a mountain is going to do that. But this, um, you keep lighting up uh, describing this difference where there is just a lot less known and it is sort of walking into the dark in a way. Yeah, yeah. Some peaks have become very popular in recent years. Uh, for instance, Ama de Blum, the peak we were climbing just before our unclimb peak. Um, Ted and I were there during the pandemic, uh, October, November of 2020, and we were the only team there. One other team came after us, but that was it for the entire season. We were the first people into Nepal during uh, the pandemic and the first people into the Kumbu. Yeah, first, first tourists in the country since the March of 2020 lockdown. So that was a really special time. Um, last season on this peak, there was a, a lot more climbers. Things were opening up, all this pent up demand, people wanting to go live out their goals and dreams and bucket list challenges. And this last season saw the busiest season ever on Ahmed Ablam. Um, so there were hundreds of climbers there. And, and for me, it was a little overwhelming seeing so many people there to go climb this mountain on one route, which has very limited uh tent space at camps one and camp two, even camp three. And it's very hard to pass people on uh, sections of this route where there's one fixed line going up and down. Um, so more people's not necessarily always a good thing um, in, a, in a small area, especially a, a very narrow ridge. You may remember that um, photo of the summit of Mount Everest. Um, I think it was May 22nd, 2019, very crowded summit ridge. And that photo went viral. People thought, oh my gosh, how could it be so crowded up there? And that was one slice of time out of an entire season, out of a year. Normally Everest doesn't look like that, but it was one day that got very crowded because you had so many people going up and coming down at the same time. And the weather had been bad before that. So people had been waiting and waiting. And finally, when there was a good forecast, they went for it all at the same time. We climbed the next day and it wasn't crowded. Um, and this last summit on Everest uh, this this year in May, actually we had the, the summit day all to ourselves, which I prefer. That's how I would like to spend it up there, just soaking in the experience. Um, so so going from a peak, Amit Ablam, which is very beautiful, love climbing the mountain, but having the busiest season ever there with over 200 climbers and base camping on the mountain, um, then going off to this unclimbed peak where there was nobody for miles and miles around us. That was a big change for me, and I appreciate um, being out there in a remote location with less people around. Securing permits for this mission, trickier than normal, kind of similar? What was that part of this process like? So we work with an amazing agency in Nepal um, that I've, I've been with since 2014, and they take care of all the um, permit applications, um, help us with a lot of our logistics. So it actually wasn't that hard. We just um, sent over um, the location and, and drew a, a, a line on the map of where the peak was that we wanted to climb. And they got all the permits ready to go for us um, in Nepal at the Ministry of Tourism. So it was actually pretty easy. How did you guys go about assembling the team or deciding even how big of a squad to uh, to undertake this first ascent. So initially, uh, I opened it up to the climbers on our Amit Ablam expedition, which is a commercial expedition, uh, 12 climbers, and said, okay, we're going to plan to do this unclimbed peak afterwards. Who wants to go? And three folks wanted to go out of that team, not counting Ted. Um, and two ended up going with us um, to the unclimbed peak, including myself and Ted. 
And then uh, we had four climbing Sherpas helping us out. Now, for two of the Sherpa, this peak is above their village. And so they'd always wanted to climb it. And we thought naturally, like they need to have the first crack at it. It's their peak. It's their their land around it. Um, so Ong Furba, the leader, um, our Sirdar, that means head Sherpa. And uh, Dawa Tenzi, um, a good friend of his from his village, who's also helped us out on other climbs um, during the year. Very good technical climber. Um, they decided to take on this project and, and lead much of the climbing once we got there. So they had two other uh, climbers, uh, Dorje Sherpa um, and uh, Tindu in addition, and they helped out as well. But it was really on Furba and, and Dawa Tenzi that did the uh, majority of the leading and, and route planning up high. Okay, so we've got the team. What day do you start up? We spent about a week uh, at our at our base camp from uh, after the Amit Blom climb. And when we got there, uh, it started snowing pretty soon after we got there. And it snowed three, four, maybe even five days. I kind of lost track of time. Um, the tents were being buried in snow and... Um, no visibility. We tried hiking along the hillside one day for a couple hours and basically almost, almost got lost. I mean, we could follow our footsteps back, but we just like, couldn't see anything. Um, so it started to seem pretty low probability that we were going to have any, any shot at this thing. Um, the hillside, uh, where we were is it's sort of the first flank of mountain, um, in the Makalu region that, uh, it, in a sense is the first flank of mountain for the Himalayas that weather from the India subcontinent is, is sort of hitting and, and uplifting over so that any moisture that's in the air across almost the whole continent is, uh, is going to, to sort of be squeezed out of the air and turn into cloud and, and deposit on the mountain as it rises. And I mean, almost three weeks that we were at Amitabhlam and there was not a single moment of precipitation. It was constantly blue skies. And then we, we went to this area just a short distance away and it was just <laughs> completely different. Um, so we spent about a week there and we did get a, a break in the weather. Um, there's really one day, uh, the day before, uh, start the morning started off fine. And we went up, um, to, to get a better look at the route and, and the Sherpas, um, started to, to fix a bit of the route. Um, I went up, uh, further than, than Garrett and, um, and, and Rich, the, the client who, who remained with us. Um, and it seemed a lot bigger. The, the route seemed a lot bigger than, uh, it looked down from base camp or, um, we, we had all of a sudden it was like, okay, this is possible, but I think we need two days, not one day to climb it. And I came back and, and mentioned that to Garrett, but by that point it had been a month in Nepal and we were stuck in our tents in the snow. And I think everybody just kind of wanted to go home was, was kind of tired and, and ready to go home. So the group psychology of it was really, it's, it's tomorrow or never. <laughs> so let's wake up super early and give a crack at it tomorrow. And, uh, and, and that was the best weather day in the forecast. And, um, and we did that and then it started to come together. It definitely 
we were pushing, we were sort of flirting with the edge of, of, a, of a time limit or a turnaround point the whole time because of how big it was. Um, but we just, we just kept at it and, and ended up reaching the top and coming down safely. Garrett, what would you add to that tale? Oh gosh. So we got to the unclimbed peak and the weather changed. It snowed for a couple of days and it had had been clear and crisp bluebird days up until that point for our entire trip in Nepal. It had been really nice weather. Um, just blue skies, not even high winds for the most part. So the climbing up until that point was phenomenal. Just the views and being in Nepal, trekking through the valleys. Um, when we got to this new peak, the, the weather just night and day switch. It was cloudy and snowing and snowed probably almost two feet um, initially the first 24 hours we were there. And then once the snow let up, we were able to to poke our heads out and do some scouting, some reconnaissance. But um my energy was pretty low after the first climb and getting there and having all that snow. And I thought, oh, chances are going to be pretty small that we can pull this off, let alone even get up on the peak. Ted did some scouting and uh, and got up there with some of our Sherpas and and came back and said, oh, I think we can do it. Let's 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 give it a go. And sure enough, the next day was a great day. And then the weather was going to change after that. And um, the other climbers wanted to get out of there just after the long duration of time we had in Nepal. So we had one day to do it. So we woke up early, um, left camp about 2 a.m., got on the route probably around 7 or 8 a.m. Um, and it was a really fun climb, beautiful terrain, um, mostly exposed ridge climbing, um, and got up to the point where the sun hit us. <laughs> and that always gives some extra confidence, reassurance. Um, but we didn't know if we were going to make it to the top. The higher, the higher we got, the further away the summit seemed at some points. And uh, it was it was becoming late in the day. In fact, Rich, the the climber with us who had stayed over from Mom and Ablam, asked at one point, "What's our turnaround time?" And I thought, "Gosh, uh, well, we don't really have one because as long as things are going well, we're going to keep going. We've all got headlamps, right?" Which we did. Uh, but we got to the summit around two thirty in the afternoon, and the clouds were coming in and out. Really beautiful time to be up there. And then started making our way down, and got back to camp just after dark. I think this summit correct me if i've got this wrong is about 18,200 feet that sounds about right and so you 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 started the day at what altitude i want to say 12 maybe uh what i know for sure is that the actual ridge there was some hiking up a steep kind of mossy hillside to get to a saddle at the start of the climb and then the climb itself was about 1400 meters um, so pretty big for a climb. Um, the reference point in my mind is I have done a fair amount of climbing in El Shell 10 Patagonia, and that's about as big as, as any route could possibly be down there. Like the, the Fitzroy sit start is like 1,600 meters. Um, it's, it's big, um, normally of a sort of classic Alpine large climb in, in America, in the Sierras or somewhere would be maybe. 300 meters, maybe 400 meters. Um, so the actual climbing was, uh, substantially bigger than 
Um, which is funny because the the altitude isn't that high, at least for the Himalayas. For I mean, Himalayas. if there was an eighteen thousand foot peak with a thousand four hundred meter ridge on it here in the states, it'd be like <laughs> yeah. the most all time thing yep. anyone's ever heard of yep. in the United States. It'd yep. be super insane. Hmm. Um, but in the Himalayas, eighteen thousand two hundred <laughs> feet is like a trekking hill. It's barely, you know, and we're at like the first sort of rumple of hills leading up to Everest again, kind of that initial flank. Um, but it's relatively low altitude for the Himalayas with um, a sort of shark's tooth, uh, rocky ridge that was about 1,400 meters. Yeah. Tell us more about the style of the climb. Yeah, I think the style was Himalayan. <laughs> it's quite different, <laughs> quite different than <laughs> I'm used to as, as an alpinist. Um, in, so the, it's, the way people climb peaks in the Himalayas is they fix ropes. Um, some people do it differently and take a traditional Alpine style. Um, and that's, that's great. That's not what we did here. Um, Garrett had, uh, we, there were, there were clients involved. It was a big team fixing, fixing, I think there were six or seven of us. Um, fixing ropes is dramatically safer because it allows rapid descent. Um, it, it also, I mean, with that many people, I mean, imagine, imagine building anchors and doing individual rappels across six or seven people for a thousand four hundred meters of climbing. It's just, it would take forever. Um, so we climbed it with with fixed lines. The Sherpa team was rigging as as we were with them. Um, that's the way most mountains are climbed in the Himalayas. Um, it's pretty different than what I'm used to, as I mentioned, but honestly, it was like really fun. Everyone was having a good time and the Sherpas were psyched. <laughs> they were super amped. Um, I mean, this mountain is above their, their village. They've always wanted to climb it. They climb mountains year round in this style where they're fixing ropes. And this was like a real, um, you know, high, high quality experience for them. They were, they were just having a great time. Hmm. For somebody who is unclear, what do you mean by fixing ropes? It means you you have a lot of rope. You have a lot of thin static line that's relatively lightweight for its for being a rope, but it's a lot of it. Spools of rope, and you you start with a rope at the bottom, and as you climb, you're you're putting in anchors every hundred feet or so, and you're affixing the rope to that anchor, and then you're continuing with the spool of rope. So there's a continuous line of rope. Um, from the summit to the bottom that's put in place. Uh, this is how commercial guiding works in the Himalayas. This is how every peak uh, that's, that's a trade route or otherwise is, is fixed. Um, it's, it's the style there. Required or just more convention? So um, on Everest... And on Amade Blam, um, the Expedition Operators Association in Nepal puts out a, a bid, a prospectus, for companies that want to take on that project ahead of time before the season. So uh, for a couple of years there on Everest, my team was doing the rope fixing project on Everest. So we would submit a proposal to the Expedition Operators Association, include everything that it would require for us to do this with the cost and um, for a couple of years, they they gave us the bid, so our company got to do this project. 
Um, it was a lot of work. And after a couple of years of doing it, I thought, okay, this was very nice to do. Happy to uh, pass on this in the future because it's a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. And if for some reason, someone doesn't like the lines that you've put in, um, you know, they could complain or what if somebody broke a line and died, there could be some liability there. So after two years of doing that on Everest, it went very well, but I decided, okay, time for me to pass on this because the amount of work it requires isn't necessarily worth um, just knowing that we did it. Other, another team could do this and they'd be happy to do it. Same thing on Amada Blom. We did that a couple of years. Um, on the Enclimb Peak, it's up to us if we want to fix it or not. But for these other routes, sometimes there is a fixed line that one team is essentially paid uh, by this association to do that fixing work to put in the lines for everyone that wants to go up there during the season. Most of these folks are commercial climbers that are coming in. They want to climb Everest or Amada Blom or um, another peak. So for these high volume peaks, um, there is some kind of um, climbing route, ropes, pitons, other anchors, snow pickets, ice screws put in um, ahead of the climbing season by one team. And that's coordinated um, amongst these operators. For our peak, there wasn't because it was just our team. So it was up to us if we wanted to climb it with fixed lines or um, traditional alpine style climbing, or we could even free solo it like uh, the the late, great RIP Uli Steck used to do quite a bit and other free solo climbers do. So it's really up to us. Um, the main thing that, that I wanted and I think we wanted to see was our Sherpa team um, taking the ownership and being out front and, and getting to really make this climb theirs because this was their peak. It's from the valley above their village. It's meant a lot to them to have the opportunity to go there. Um, we wanted to give this to them as much as we could. And so that, that meant, you know, me not being out front or Ted not being out front um, and certainly not being up there on the summit, just, just some foreigners. We wanted it to be their peak for them to, to lead it, to get up there. And we could share that and celebrate with them together. Um, their accomplishment. It, it was kind of the safest uh, possible construct. So, so if it was just Garrett and I, that would be quite different than a team of of seven. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really the safest, and and it's traditionally how first ascents are done in the Himalayas. Um, and I don't just mean that in terms of the style of the fixer rope. I actually mean that in a broader sense. Like we had. Um, essentially financial support from Garrett's clients to, to do this expedition, which is the old style of going and doing a first ascent. It's, it's like pa patronage, I guess you could call it, which, um, you know, may have come from whole nation states in a different era, but that I don't, I haven't seen much of that in, in the media these days, I guess what I've seen a lot more of is, um, some cutting edge alpinists going and doing a cutting edge line. Um, and that's rad. And that has a different place. It's, it's often on peaks that have been climbed. It's maybe a different route on a peak that has been climbed. Um, this was quite different. I mean, this peak had never been climbed. It was unnamed there. It, it was sort of, it harkened back to a different era in style, in financial structure, in <laughs> just every aspect really. Um, I thought that was quite cool. I thought that was a really unique experience and, um, and that's just how, how it all went down. Yeah. Let's go back to talking about the route itself. Did that end up seeming like a pretty easy call in terms of the line or was it like, wow, there's infinite options and I guess we'll just 
keep figuring it out as we go. How did you, what was your approach like for that? There were a lot of options, um, but they, we probably took the line of least resistance. I mean, it's, you can't rerun the experiments. Like we climbed every line. Um, there were some snow and ice coolar type lines that um, we, we climbed the, the arete of a, of a ridge. This thing kind of looks like an arrowhead. Um, and we climbed the, the arete, which had a lot more exposure and um, a lot more rock climbing. There were some lines of snow and ice that were navigating up the, the pure face on, on different sides. But those lines might have had some severely more technical parts of them or choke points, more higher steepness. I was looking around the whole time, kind of asking that question and trying to evaluate. But we just stayed on the ridge the whole time, and uh, that worked. That worked well. Yeah, the route itself—it was a beautiful line. A lot of loose rock up there. We had to be mindful of that for our own safety. Um, sections of the route did have some frozen snow, which was nice to climb with the crampons from time to time. But it was predominantly rock, so a lot of mixed climbing with crampons on rock. Um, some fun tower sections near the end of the route. Um, without fixed line, it, it would have taken a lot longer, um, been many more days and uh, significantly higher hazards. Um, but having the fixed lines there made it very doable for us going up and down. So uh, really fun route. And um, Ted got some great photos of us uh, along the way up there. So hopefully he'll be up for sharing those later on. So by the way, um, jump jumping back in about all the, all the rope, um, carrying the ropes, uh, somebody listening to this might naturally question, um, who, who was carrying all that rope and how heavy was that? And were, were the Sherpas just carrying all this rope? Like, sounds great, but didn't you just have Sherpas like overloaded with the weight of ropes and not really. I mean, we, we each had bags of maybe 15, 20 pounds. I happened to be carrying camera equipment cause that was my job. I was there on an assignment for mountain hardware, but, um, it wasn't that onerous, surprisingly. That's why there was um, four Sherpa. Uh, th this style was, it, it just flowed faster doing it this way, believe it or not, um, and wasn't necessarily super burdensome to, to any particular team member. We kind of like to talk about gear around here. So I'd be interested to hear each of you maybe single out just a couple of pieces that you were particularly happy to have on this trip. And I know you had just gotten done climbing, which is, turns out I would assume pretty helpful, even though you just said conditions were quite different between the climbs. But did you end up switching up the gear you brought on this ascent versus what you had just done? Talk a bit about the gear side. So... In terms of the gear we brought, there were a couple of things that really stood out in my mind that made a big difference climbing the, the unclimbed, unnamed route. Um, number one, the the shell jacket and shell pants I had received from Mountain Hardware. It's um, the route setter jacket and pants combo. Uh, I believe it's not out yet, um, still prototype, but the combination of um, a good outer layer shell that's extremely durable and rugged. Um, but at the same time has all the accessories, the pockets, you know, waterproof, windproof. Um, that was really helpful for me because with all this mixed climbing, meaning snow, ice, and rock, and especially a lot of it being rock and very sharp rock, um, 
the jacket held up very well over over those conditions. Whereas um, our friend Rich had on uh, a lightweight uh, puffy jacket during the ascent, and after that day, his was torn to shreds. So I, I had actually put my puffy under my my route setter shell, and that kept it it safe and protected and kept me warm. So just having that durability tough outer layer was really important. And then also the the new route setter gloves uh, combination of of leather um, and nylon. I, I like the the dual uh, stretchy ability from the nylon work with the, the leather covering the important places, the fingertips, the palm grips um, for, for finding different handholds on that cold, snowy, icy terrain. And then also for rappelling down um, I found those those two items were really helpful, the, the shells and the gloves. Yeah, I mean, the shells were were super critical. Um, mix snow and, and rock, uh, ice ice and rock climbing together, you just get wet and it's pretty rugged um, on the gear, on the apparel. So having like a suit of armor uh, is really important. Um, the Trango 310, I mean super bomber mainstay of most big mountain expeditions. Um, you can live in that thing in a, in a raging storm and feel really comfortable and secure. Um, I love, I love that tent. I've used it all over the world and it, it was really helpful in the, in the thick snowstorm that happened to us. Cause it, it was sort of collapsing. Um, I think if it wasn't such a bomber tent, it might've started collapsing the tent but we were basically being buried. Um, the negative 40 degree Alpine, uh, the, the sleeping bag, sorry, Phantom Phantom Alpine, Phantom Pro, the hardware sleeping bag. Um, I, I bring that thing every time I go to Nepal and it's just, it's just super comfortable and it, it doesn't have to be negative 40 out to want a negative 40 sleeping bag. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like, it, like just go outside when it's zero degrees and imagine like sleeping on the ground and, and tell me you don't want like right. a, a little more. 40 yeah. Sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like, you want as much as warmth as you can get when it's, um, cold or wintry outside. And, um, and then the down suit, the down suit was super, I kind of like rediscovered or discovered the down suit um, just around base camp because again, it's just cold. We're in this wintry storm and I was just living in the down suit and really enjoying it. It's like walking around with a sleeping bag on all the time. <laughs> it's really, really nice to have. So this maybe leads to another question. How much does what you bring on a climb stay the same? And let's keep it to the Himalayas. If you're in Nepal, are you just kind of bringing exactly the same stuff every climb, switching it up a little bit or switching it up quite a bit, depending on the particular forecasts? Well, when I'm going to Nepal, it's usually for Everest, uh, let's say, uh, or another 8,000 meter peak or 6,000 meter peak like Amit Blom or this unclimbed peak. But for me, that's generally enough in the ballpark where my kit stays the same. I've, I've still got the down suit, even though I didn't wear it on the unclimbed peak. I could wear it in base camp. Um, we wore it on the Amit Blom summit day because Amit's a little higher. It's about 22,500 feet. Summit day is all in the shade. So you want to stay warmer. So for me, my kit stays the same from peak to peak when I'm in Nepal. Yeah. In sum, you're not trying to switch it up. And I take it in part because 
Forecasts are one thing, but what you actually end up encountering, you want to be ready. It's it's like being an astronaut, I think. Like you need <laughs> you need to be able to survive um if if you have to, right? Let's talk about the summit. Curious, of course, to know what the two of you felt up there, but as curious to hear what you were kind of seeing from your fellow team members on this, uh, who you said, I mean, this was quite special um, for them to stand on top of a peak above their home village. What was that experience like? <laughs> let, let me just first interject that we almost turned around one pitch from the summit because it was so late in the day and we ran out of rope. So we, we'd run out of rope and there was this moment of like, Ooh, maybe it's time to turn back. Like it was kind of a, the, the storm never felt menacing storms, the wrong word, but there were clouds everywhere and it was swirling and it wasn't a bluebird high pressure day. Um, and it was quite late and, it, it seemed like maybe we should turn back. Um, but we ended up uh, cutting some rope free from a different portion of the climb below us and using that to rig uh, the final um, steep head wall, which was literally just like one foot of enough rope. Like there was no rope left at the end. It was, it was kind of shocking. The whole time it was happening, it was like, I don't think there's enough rope here. Um, and then there was. <clears throat> and the Sherpas were... Um, we're psyched. I mean, this, this is what we, we talked about naming the peak, um, the name of their village Kembalong, um, prior to climbing it. And, and they, I don't know, they've looked at this peak for their whole life. They were just really psyched. So it was like, let's do it. And, uh, and I mean, Garrett, I don't know. Tell me what, what how did you feel up there? You had an American flag at one point, right? <laughs> I took a photo of it. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Um, I would say initially elation and relief. Um, part of my job as the expedition organizer leader um, is I put this thing out there. Hey, we can go do this team. Who wants to go? And, you know, Ted's on board. The Sherpas are on board. Rich, one of the, the climber client customers is on board. Um, but I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know if it's going to work out or not, or if we'll even survive it or not, right? Whereas like some of these commercial peaks I do year after year on these more conventional routes, um, I have a, a better idea of what I might be able to expect. So when we got to the top, um, elation being up there with some good friends and seeing their accomplishment, their excitement to be up there, but also a bit of relief that like, okay, we made it as far as we planned to come. Now we can go down. <laughs> let's get back safe and, and sort of, uh, you know, check the box. Let's get back to camp and make sure we're all safe because we're pretty far out there. And on any summit day, whether it's Everest or K2 or an unclimbed peak or even Kilimanjaro or maybe Mount Rainier here in the U.S., the most dangerous point uh, often is when you're the furthest amount of distance or time away from your camp or your safety zone. So, uh, on summit day, we climb, climb, climb out there further, 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 like swimming out into the ocean from the beach. And now we're at the furthest point away from safety. So we have to 
to climb down or swim back all the way to that beach to get back to our safe zone. So it, it is a little bit like being an astronaut and you're kind of away from the main ship or walking around on the moon, but you got to get back to your ship at some point where you've got food, water, stove, sleeping bag, et cetera, and then continue back on towards civilization. Well, really well said. So if I have this right, it was a 2 a.m. start to the day summit around 2.30 p.m. And then was the descent happily uneventful? Talk a bit about the descent. Yeah, the descent went smooth. Um, I think uh, Ted and I were hanging back a little bit while the others cruised ahead um, just to soak up some of that late day golden hour lighting up high on the ridge with the clouds coming in and out and the light changing on the other peaks. Um, just enjoying that that summit afterglow on our way down. Once we got off the technical part of the ridge, um, it quickly became dark, and we used our headlamps for the remainder of the descent a couple hours back down to our high camp. Made it back around what eight o'clock or so at dinner. I think a little late. I think it was a nineteen hour day, but pretty reasonable by you know <laughs> summit day standards. Like kind of in line par for the course we call that himalayan reasonable yeah 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 yeah. big day felt tired but uh but all went all went well i mean my big concern especially on the descent was rock fall there's a lot of loose rock potential and seven people coming down a fixed line might knock a block free which with the way the ridge we were on would probably not would would probably fall away from the ridge, but in some aspects there were places where it could fall directly um, and either cut the line or hurt somebody. Or um, but everyone was really careful and you know moved gingerly around loose rock sections, and there were no no rock fall events. So naming this peak? Where are we in that process? So that's a process that goes through the Ministry of um, Tourism and Civil Aviation in Nepal. And um, it involves submitting a, a request to name it probably at least a year out. Um, it usually takes us about a year to get our summit certificates from Everest or Amit Um So just got to wait for that internal process to uh, work itself and, and take time. But I think it would be really cool if uh, it could be named after the village that our Sherpas are from who climbed the peak because um, it's really their mountain, right? It's in their backyard and they've been looking at it all their lives for many generations. So I think that seems appropriate. Well, I really appreciate the recounting of the of the adventure and very happy that everyone made it up and down safe and sound. What does the rest of this winter look like for the two of you? Well, I'm off shortly to Antarctica <laughs> for a couple of <laughs> climbs of Mount Vincent. Man. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Forgot. Yeah, yeah. He's got to keep his. That. He's got to keep his most interesting man in the world cred up here. So, yeah, right. got to keep the legend alive. So after Antarctica to Aconcagua for some uh, some climbing on the highest peak in the southern hemisphere, a few stakes along the way, hopefully a little red wine, and then off to Everest again, uh, April and May. Wow. 
Garrett's like, I have to go deep into the ocean because sharks have a whole week named after me and I have to <laughs> spend some time. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, Garrett's constantly doing pretty rad stuff. Um, I'm home for the, for the moment, for the holidays and um, putting together uh, the, next, the next set of assignments. Um, not exactly sure. Uh, what yet, but things kind of come and go in my world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you both have a fantastic season. And again, I really appreciate you coming on to tell us about this first descent. And uh, I was, I don't know, I was very ready just personally to kind of get a good old fashioned, you know, climbing narrative here so uh you guys have uh checked that box for me and it's impressive what you've done and uh good luck going forward with such adventures and i look forward to the next time the two of you get together oh me too jonathan thank you so much yeah thanks for having us on absolutely all right guys take care thanks you too see ya Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Ted and Garrett for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, that would definitely count as a nice little holiday present for us. And it does also help us keep this whole thing going and growing. So there's something in it for you too. All right, on that note, please now take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon on all of our other Blister podcasts. Take care, everybody.